0: the Nest Protect fiasco, and could HomeKit fail? On today's Smart Home Weekly Wrap-Up on the Smart Home Show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Home Show. My name is Michael Wolf. This is the Smart Home Weekly Wrap-Up for the week ending Friday, February 27th the day that Leonard Nimoy died. I just learned that, and that's kind of crazy. It's actually pretty sad, and hopefully that'll allow us to stop talking about this weird dress picture that I at first saw as being black and blue, and then it became white and gold, and I can't unsee the white and gold. So you're probably sick of hearing about that. So we can move quickly on to smart home news. I haven't done a smart home weekly wrap-up for... It's been a a few weeks, and I apologize for that. Uh, There's been a lot of projects. I actually have quite a few interviews interviews with smart home experts lined up, and we'll be publishing those over the next week. I think I'm just going to release a bunch in succession and just get them out there, and I hope uh, you guys enjoy those. I have one with uh, the head of Logitech's uh, p- smart home platform. I also have one with Chamberlain, the garage door company, not actually the company, but someone from the company. Today's wrap-up, we'll be looking at uh, some of the news from the wrap-up I, I finished earlier in the week, as well as... Some news that came out uh, just after that, including the news that the Bluetooth special interest group released a release of news that they've created a mesh working group. We'll also go over ADT's new ad campaign. We'll talk about the Nest Protect fiasco. Uh, One of Google's employees going, going a little bit crazy. And we'll also talk about some of the ways in which HomeKit could possibly fail, because I wrote a piece for Forbes and you know everyone's basically assuming that HomeKit's going to be this smash success, but I think it's at least worth wondering if there's some possible missteps in Apple's future around their smart home efforts. So let's get going. First off, the news that came out, I believe it was Tuesday, the Bluetooth SIG mentioned or the Bluetooth SIG announced that they had created a working group around Bluetooth mesh. And this was interesting because I was actually scheduled to go meet with the folks from the Bluetooth SIG who were in my neck of the woods over in Corkland, Washington. I was scheduled to visit them. So I visited them on Wednesday, the day after the announcement came on Tuesday, that they formed a Bluetooth mesh working group. And what's interesting about this is a couple things, right? So the Bluetooth uh, group had never really had mesh. Bluetooth has been one of those technologies that was fundamentally different from Zigbee and Z-Wave in that they, it couldn't do mesh networking. Now, there were companies like Cambridge Silicon Radio or CSR that had created their own proprietary mesh networking with Bluetooth. But the standard, the specification never had that as a part of the spec, never had a part of their technology. And so the Bluetooth SIG, the folks creating the specifications and kind of overseeing that, realized this. They've been hearing very actively from their community. And so they announced that they will be working on this. And so it was good for me to actually get out there and talk to them because I actually sat and talked to the folks who really know what they're talking about. And basically what they told me is, you know, there was just such demand for this. This is one of those things that everyone is demanding. It's one of the things that everyone's talking about within the Bluetooth community. In addition to beacons, the two things that are really hot right now in the Bluetooth community are beacons and mesh. And if you don't know what beacons are, it's basically this idea that um, you could be in a store or be in your home, and your your proximity to the beacon, uh, a Bluetooth sensor, uh, helps you to kind of – Get contextual services or notices or whatever. A good example is maybe a, a retail storefront, a grocery store, and you have a Bluetooth uh, radio embedded in your shopping cart, and and you could get little notifications depending on where you are, uh, based on the proximity to a certain beacon. But the mesh side, which is coming now within the, the the spec and should be released in 2016, according to the the SIG folks, is basically allowing Bluetooth become uh, this network that can grow and scale. Fairly infinitely, uh, by just adding nether radios, and so each individual Bluetooth radio becomes a repeater, an ad hoc network, and that actually counters a lot of the sh- shortcomings around Bluetooth Bluetooth range issues. So if you look at Bluetooth, uh, the, the stated range is about thirty-two feet or so, just typically. That's what it's always said. It generally it can be a lot longer than that. I mean, the the and a lot of the people who are uh, not proponents of Bluetooth, you know, maybe representing other technologies will say that it's limited to 30 feet or about 10 meters, but actually a lot of times it goes longer than that, but still it's shorter than Wi-Fi, right? And it's not a mesh tech. It hasn't been a mesh technology, so it can't necessarily compete by extending its range like Zigbee or Z-Wave. Well, now with mesh, uh, if you have multiple Bluetooth radios, say like five Bluetooth light bulbs in your house, each one of them can take a signal and pass it on to the next. That's what mesh does. And that's the magic of mesh. And so um, you know, I wrote a piece for Forbes basically saying that this with mesh, uh, Bluetooth becomes a much more compelling technology for the Internet of Things. Uh, Smart Home is a part of that, certainly. But if you look at other, tech, other areas of application, be it in healthcare or in warehouses, whatever, you, you can certainly see how mesh would be more important. Interesting thing that the Bluetooth folks always told me that I haven't written about yet, just thought I'd mention to you for your podcast listeners. They are definitely looking at range in and of itself as part of the core spec, so extending the Bluetooth range beyond uh, what's typically been, you know, it's it's 30 feet or so stated range. So that might be something coming down the pike built into the core specification. It's just longer range. But right now, uh, they're looking to get the, the mesh part of it out. And so that will be uh, what's next. That should be released in 2016. They said there probably will be early uh, pre-specification silken out from the likes of, you know, Qualcomm which owns CSR or other tech, other companies own Bluetooth uh, Bluetooth IP like like Broadcom and so you might see products on the market before the end of 2016 they also told me that the head of the uh, the Bluetooth mesh working group is a uh, someone from CSR or I think they said pro tempum but whatever the term is temporary uh, president of the Bluetooth working group is from CSR um, now Certainly, I've always kind of wondered if, uh, because CSR had their own proprietary mesh technology, if they would be leading the charge. But, you know, certainly the company line from the Bluetooth SIG guys is that everyone's participating from an IP perspective. We'll see. Um, or it's, it's probably a little different from what you old-time home network insiders saw with Homeplug, where Intelon really drove what the the technology looked like. Homeplug uh, was a power line technology. Intelon was a, a company that had most of the intellectual property around that. But it's probably a little bit different scenario uh, with Bluetooth mesh because I think there's a lot of people that own IP around Bluetooth, uh, which is different than Homebug, obviously. Moving on, let's talk a little bit about HomeKit. I'm hearing more – it seems like more and more companies are talking a little more openly about HomeKit and when they'll be shipping product. I was just talking to a company yesterday, um, Chamberlain, and they talked about how they will have their HomeKit-enabled garage openers in, I think, the July, June-July time frame. You know, before you never really heard anything like these guys were basically uh, sworn to secrecy. They would disappear in the middle of the night if they if they actually gave a date because Apple henchmen would come after them. But now you're starting to see people start to talk about dates, which tells me that you're going to see HomeKit home kid announcements from Apple, certainly before June, probably. Um, because I think you're starting to see people talk about products and when they're going to ship. And, uh, you know, like I said, up to this point, it had been largely vague, but now we're starting to see that change a little bit. So I had actually started uh, to think about HomeKit just generally and and whether or not it's going to be the panacea or, or going to be the miracle that everyone, I think, in the smart home is expecting it to be. So I wrote a piece for Forbes and asked, you know, what happens if HomeKit fails? Or what happens, what are some reasons that HomeKit maybe failed to meet the expectations that a lot of people have for it? And really, I kind of outlined uh, basically three or four reasons. One of them was, what if HomeKit doesn't really make the, the smart home simpler? I mean, really, the promise of HomeKit and the promise that Apple brings, this idea of Apple and the smart home, is things will just work. Um, you know, Apple TV, their their music streaming, the, the iPhone, the iPad, all just work really well. And, and generally, just everything's seamless. Well, the, the problem with the Internet of Things is you're plugging in a million different devices, Uh, Just different devices, different companies, different software sets. Um, Certainly, HomeKit is a software layer that people will build in to make things interoperate. But you just can't necessarily be sure that everything will work together seamlessly. I mean, I'm sure that's why things are taking a little while, why HomeKit products actually haven't shipped. It's because Apple's learning a lot. You know, talking to my sources, you know, Apple is on a huge learning curve right now. And they really had this goal with home to maybe be fair. Their goals initially for home kit were fairly modest to, you know, make the iPhone and iOS devices kind of a, a central command center where you can have a single unified app and control devices. Um, but what they're finding from my, from what I've heard is just, this is a difficult task to do. This isn't as seamless as just creating a bunch of different Apple products that work together. So, um, so it makes me think that they probably will get things to work eventually, but right now they're definitely learning a lot, and this is probably proving a little bit harder than they expected. And so when they, if you ask about look at things and whether HomeKit can make things actually simpler, or, you know, Apple doesn't always do great software, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, if you look at iTunes, I think iTunes is a horrible piece of software. Sure, it's kind of locked in a legacy world where it kind of has to maybe be backwards compatible with a bunch of different devices, but it's still – It's not a simple way to navigate your personal media. It's a terrible way to navigate your personal media. Most other software is much better. Compare the simplicity of Spotify or uh, Pandora to iTunes. And iTunes is just hard. I mean, I've written books about computers and technology for publishers, and I I sometimes still can't figure out how to burn a disk with iTunes. So not to say that HomeKit won't necessarily make uh, the smart home simpler, but Apple always doesn't necessarily – make things simpler. Sometimes they make things more difficult with their software. So we'll see what happens there. The second reason is, you know, will Apple actually bring an approach to the market that is open and uh, embraces openness? Well, I think that when you look at the smart home and the internet of things, one of the things I keep hearing from everyone, uh, specifically in the last three to six months from the executive side of things, is we just have to have this open approach, things have to interoperate, and a bunch of walled gardens just won't work. Well, the biggest walled garden company in the world has typically been Apple, right? I mean, you you basically have to be, uh, you know, you basically have to work with Apple, you have to be part of the Apple ecosystem, you have to be accepted to their program to interoperate. And so Apple, uh, Apple products oftentimes are part of a big walled garden. So when you start to look at whether or not Apple's approach will be open enough for the Internet of Things, for the smart home. You have to wonder. Um, certainly, they're not going to allow um, Android devices or Windows devices to control things on a HomeKit network, and that makes sense. I mean, their agenda here, really, and I think they've said this to partners, is they want the iOS devices to be the central control point for the smart home. So it makes sense that they wouldn't allow Windows or Android devices to control uh, things on a on a HomeKit network. But but that creates a world where you. You have things that aren't working together very seamlessly a lot of times. If you have a mixed network, a mixed household, Windows machines, Android devices, um, they're basically forcing you to buy Apple devices to control your homekit network, which is kind of a pain. Now, ultimately, if if they go down the road where Apple TV maybe is a central control point, and they allow you to use an maybe an Android device to to control that, that might be something they do. I don't know. I mean, but they typically haven't allowed. Uh, different devices on different operating systems into the family, if you will. So we'll see if Apple really allows an open enough approach for the smart home to make things move smoothly. You know, another potential falling point, another stumbling point for me is Siri. Now Siri, I think is probably the most evolved and furthest along of their voice recognition technologies, but Siri um, still has its failings. You know, sometimes it, it doesn't work seamlessly and generally just more spe- more generally about voice control in the home. Most implementations of voice recognition in the home for our digital home and our interaction kind of seems clunky. I mean, certainly the Xbox One voice control through the Kinect. Um, they basically had to stop selling the Kinect and pushing voice control with the Xbox One because it just didn't work that great and people were sick of it. So that was super annoying for people. Um, the Amazon Echo, I think, was a great a device out of the gate worked, you know, better than people would have expected using Amazon's native voice control technology, from what I understand. Um, but it still isn't perfect. And so, when you think about what what the reliance that Apple is going to put on Siri, from all under all indications, as part of the smart home control, uh, it, that just I just have to wonder if that will be one of the annoying parts of, of what HomeKit brings to us, and maybe a reason for people to get annoyed with it. We'll see. The last reason I have around speculation of how possibly HomeKit could fail or not reach expectations is HomeKit maybe just will prove too limited. Like I said, you know, Apple, uh, from what I've heard from different companies, is they had a, a lot to learn. They came into this, and they're learning a lot about uh, the smart home, how difficult it is to get various companies to work together. And so uh, you know, they actually had fairly modest expectations out of the gate. And so I just wonder if all this promise being kind of heaped on on HomeKit as the savior of the smart home. I just wonder if it's too much. And ultimately, HomeKit falls under the pressure, is crushed under the great expectations that everyone has for it. We'll see. Listen, bottom line, I think HomeKit's going to be a success long term. I think Apple will be a big part of our our smart home, our connected lives. I just don't know if HomeKit initially will be uh, the savior that everyone expects it to be. Because if you look at TV the TV ecosystem everyone's been expecting Apple to solve that for the last decade and they haven't I mean Apple TV certainly is probably the best uh, the most sold brick uh, TV streamer those little devices you could seem to, to you, those little devices you could buy to stream over the top TV they probably had the best market share other than something like an Xbox so they've sold a lot of those boxes but they certainly aren't dominant in that space I don't think that Apple has dominated uh, the over-the-top, internet TV marketplace. So who's to say that they'll dominate the Toronto marketplace, these complicated markets that have a lot of different moving parts, a lot of different pieces to the ecosystem are not easy to rest control of. And so we'll see if Apple can do that. Certainly, I think that's one of the things they'd like to do over the next five to 10 years. So we'll see. Let's move on and talk about an ad campaign from ADT. Those of you who know about the home security industry know that ADT ADT is the biggest out there. They're the biggest kid on the block and a block full of a big and medium-sized kids. They're the biggest one. Um, they are when you when you buy when you go buy a house and has one of those little signs that says they have security, there's a good chance it's going to be an ADT sign. But as you know, ADT is a fairly traditional home security company who has tried to evolve by the way. Um, when I, I've talked to them, uh, when I know the people that are going over there to help lead their new, new initiatives, they have some smart people there. Um, they're definitely trying to evolve and they're trying to extend the idea of home security to just life security. So they're definitely trying to move beyond the walls of the home and just extend that, that kind of protection they provide. But they're also trying to protect their core business. So if you look at their core business, it's you know installing a house, uh, probably have a two-year contract. Uh, you probably have you know forty, fifty, sixty 60 dollars a month for paint adt um and you you can also get smart home uh, kind of bundled into that they have their smart home service as well but they're also now battling back against these these kind of upstart home security companies that um, may not require a contract maybe diy companies like uh like canary or some of these others that allow you to just buy, put a, maybe a, a super camera on steroids with some sensors built in. Um, and they're basically what their new ad campaign says is, it, it poses the question, what good is a smart home if it's not a safe home? And that kind of is the theme of the new ad campaign that, that has actually started to run using a uh, tough guy actor from Pulp Fiction, Ving Rhames. Uh, the ads are running on AMC and TNT. And they're also, you can find them as well on YouTube. But, you know, it's I think it's an interesting move and I probably think it's a smart move because I think, you know, if you look at the home security market, I think there's a core audience there who are willing to pay 50-60 dollars a month for the the kind of the comfort of the protection, the comfort of knowing there's someone on the other line when you're not there, uh, an alarm is tripped and there is a service call and uh, a policeman comes out. I think that is something that p- some people want. You know, typically the market penetration of home security, traditional home security has been around 25% a quarter of the households in the U.S. But it's been stuck there. And, you know, the ADTs of the world haven't been able to raise it. And I think that the thought with some of these new upstarts is they can eat into that to a certain degree. But I think that, by and large, uh, the ADTs of the world, and as well as the Comcast and the Time Warner's who are also doing modern security, are going to protect that 20 to 25%. And the DIY security, the stuff like the canaries of the world, the Pipers of the world, these DIY security devices and services, I think we're going to actually expand the market. So people who who rent, people who previously couldn't afford security, um, that's that's the type of audience I think is going to buy these DIY security devices. Now, there might be some people who say, well, I don't necessarily need to pay ADT. I could just go with one of these DIY. But I think by and large, these are different markets. I think they're different markets long term. Uh, as I've written uh, before, I think the the ADT market is actually threatened more from the Comcast of the world getting into it and the Time Warner is getting into it. And also, to a certain degree, companies like SimpliSafe, which offer security that's closer to traditional monitored security, but it's a DIY installation with a monitored security uh, call center and service behind that. So. I think it's complicated. I think ADT though is, is smart to probably get out in front and do some advertising and try to reinstall. This is kind of like politics, right? You know, p- install fear and doubt about about their competitors. Uh, so they're looking at these upstarts as the kind of the, the Barack Obama. Uh, and so they're going to install some fear. I mean, that's a terrible analogy. analogy I don't know. Uh, but but they're basically trying to uh, get people fearful of using these alternatives that may be built around smart home technology, but they're trying to say that they're not as safe. So uh, again, check out those ads. Uh, You can probably find them on YouTube. Another interesting thing that happened uh, this past week or so was a Google employee named Brad Fitzgerald actually posted a video on Google Plus and on YouTube basically saying, do not buy a Nest Smoke Alarm. Now, this is kind of interesting on a few levels. Obviously, the fact that he works for Google, Google and Nest, and he was basically saying this is a terribly buggy device. That's kind of interesting. And you know, the video just went on for like five minutes. and he, And he wrote on Google Plus how these he basically wrote that the they're they're terrible, they false alarm and are unhushable pieces of crap. These are his words. This went off in my house all day, annoying my neighbors. Uh, so uh, he just goes on and on. And so I can just imagine uh, the meetings that the or the calls that he may have had. Uh, Tony Fidel probably talked to him directly and said, why did you do that? Um, I think the guy probably has enough job security. He was one of the, the founders of LiveJournal. He's a serious coder. He's a core software engineer for Google. So I think he has job security. And they probably, uh, I think Google is one of those companies that uh, values honesty. But still, uh, it probably didn't go down well. So I think you know, Nest, Nest Protect, I think, is continue. I think the takeaway here is that Nest Protect actually continues to be a, a problem. Uh, For for Google, I mean, and for Nest, because, you know, as you well know, if you've been following what's been happening there, they had a recall last year. There was a problem with Nest where they basically had some advanced gesture recognition technology built in that could have led to the alarm being accidentally or or being disabled when they didn't want it to be. And so they did a huge recall. And that, I think, has been a black eye on Nest in, in general. I mean, compared to the Nest thermostat, which has been an unquestioned success has been selling like crazy. They're doing deals with utilities around the world uh, in the U S and in Ireland and elsewhere. Um, people are buying them off store shelves and installing them. That's done great. But the nest protect has been a problem for them. And so I just, you know, this combined with the news of a few weeks ago of the, you know, a chunk of the executive team from drop can leaving and basically uh, it being attributed to a disagreement of management styles between nest and Dropcam just kind of makes you wonder what's going on because there hasn't been a lot of new product out of Nest. Um, they bought Dropcam and haven't released anything new They actually shelved a product. There hasn't been really any new products coming out of Nest. The Nest Protect actually was in development before Google bought them. So it's been a, a year and three months or so, uh, since that acquisition year and two months and nothing in terms of new product, uh, from either either of those acquisitions, so it just kind of makes you wonder what's going on there. You just wonder if the nest protecting really set them back. So that's something to keep an eye on. Let's go into the smart home startup watch. One of the things I want to do, one of the things I'm be doing in my newsletters, and I think I'm going to do it on the podcast here, is just kind of very quickly go over some interesting startups because this is space obviously. Where there's lots of startups. Um, I'm talking a lot for the smart home show. You'll hear some of them in person on the smart home show, but I just some of the ones that I'm seeing in the news that are interesting. One of them is the Sesame Smartwalk from a, from a company called Candy House would actually hit its target pretty quickly. I think they in a couple of days they hit their funding goal of a hundred thousand dollars. It's a new smart walk that actually will be available for $149. You can actually buy it now for eighty nine dollars. Uh if you if you go and support it. I mean I just checked now they're at over a quarter million dollars and they have fifty seven days to go. So they're they're kind of hitting it out of the park. And this is for a smart walk. This is not a new category folks. You obviously saw August you've seen Lockatron uh, you've seen a few others out there, but uh, so these guys are doing uh, pretty well. And what's interesting is they look like they have a, they say they have a patented technology for installation where they basically slip the smart lock on without turning any screws and taking off kind of the dead pole attachment. And so I think that's interesting. And so if they have some unique IP there, that's a be, that's an interesting thing to watch. And maybe one of the reasons they're doing so well, they also have some interesting ways that in which they can detect whether or not someone's home, like a unique knock pattern, and some other things. So uh, check them out. Again, it's a Sesame Smart Walk. They're at over a quarter million dollars on today, Friday, February 27th, and with 57 days to go. Another uh, interesting product is the Neo Smart Jar. Now, I've been following the Smart Kitchen for some time. As you guys know, I've talked about it. And there's I'm seeing more and more action here. One of them is the Smart Jar, which actually uh, is intriguing to the to a certain degree. It's basically a dry storage Smart Jar, which has volumetric sensors in it. It doesn't have molecular sensors in it, so basically, it could tell you how much stuff is in there, and if you tell, if you barcode read uh, the product, it'll tell you, you know, how many servings are in there, etc. Of, the, of the particular product, because it has a big database behind it that it can read barcodes and understand the product that's in there. But it doesn't have a molecular sensor in it, so it can't necessarily tell you by uh, just sensing that it's like uh, uh, frosted flakes. So when you compare that to the vessel which is another thing I've looked at. It's, it's a liquid uh, food sensor, basically a cup with sensors in it, that was actually made fun of on on shows like the Colbert Report, but I actually think is a, a serious product. That had a, a volumetric sensor and a molecular sensor. sensor. So not only could it tell you how much Coke is in there, it could tell you that it's Coke, or it could tell you that it's, it's mug root beer, uh, or it could tell you that it's orange juice. And I think that's interesting for people who need to know very specifically how many calories they're consuming, what's in the food they're drinking, how much caffeine that they, they're consuming, etc. So uh, the Neo Smart Jar is interesting. It, it is a dry storage uh, container, not, not a liquid container. It has volumetric sensing. And you can find that on Indiegogo. Of course, you can find a link to that as well at the, at the Smart Home Weekly on, my, on our Smart Home Weekly website. Just go to smarthomeweekly.net and you can check that out there as well. Another smart home crowdfunding campaign is Hive, which is running a campaign on Kickstarter, and it hit uh, its fairly modest target, a hundred thousand. I think it's got a few days left, actually fifteen days to go. They're at about one hundred fifteen thousand right now. And Hive is a a smart home hub and security device. You know, their hub is actually fairly sensor packed. Um, It's got some Z-Wave, Zigbee, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi in it, and it also is a, a speaker system. So you can, if you support it. Depending on the level that you're supporting it, you could get the Hive sensor or the Hive Hub, Hive Hub, and uh, a bunch of different Hive hive speakers, which they're calling the Hive Sound. So you could get, uh, for example, for 349 bucks, you could get one Hive Hub and three Hive Sounds, and the Hive Sounds are little speakers with uh, voice recognition capabilities, has has a microphone in it. So again, I I think that this is interesting. I don't I don't necessarily know if. If I was creating a smarter product, I would would get into a hub and security security space right now because I think it's getting increasingly crowded. But if you do do it, you want to be differentiated. And I think Hive is a little bit differentiated in that they they have this hub, which is packed with sensors. So clearly they can connect to a lot of devices, but they also have a speaker system. And I think uh, these different speakers, it's a little bit different approach where you have a security combined with a sound system. And so uh, you could check that out, go to Kickstarter, and you can find it under Hive Connected. The last one, this is a good one to finish off of, on, is a connected toilet water monitor. Yes, folks, we are in the, the stage at the smart home market where we're getting toilet monitors, and this one's called Fluid, F L O O I D, from a company called Water Meter Solutions. And basically, uh, you put this on your toilet, you could you could detect, uh, you know, how much water you're using with your toilet, and control that. And really, w- when you look at the site and look at who they're targeting, they're targeting the super or the, the property owner of someone who has multiple multiple units and kind of wants to monitor the usage of water in a, in a specific toilet. Now, I could see this being useful in a really high-volume toilet. You have a lot of different toilets, but I don't necessarily see it as being useful for someone who has a single-family home and wants to monitor water usage because, I mean, maybe if if you're having significant issues with water wastage – but I always just kind of watch my water bill and my water bill is going up and I'm seeing it spike. I know that I need to put a new flapper in there or something. I've done that before where I've had just, while well, my water bill's terrible, I look inside the toilet and I put a flapper in and then I solved. But I mean, I think that, you know, you can only do so much around changing the amount of water you use at the toilet in terms of how much you use it and putting in the right uh, components and making sure it's, everything's working right. So uh, it's interesting. You can check that out at watermetersolutions.com, watermetersolutions.com. Again, it's Fluid, F-L-L-I-D, and it's a connected water or connected toilet water meter. Well, that's it for this week's Smart Home Weekly News Wrap-Up. Uh, again, I'll try to get these out a little more frequently in the next few weeks. As I said, I have tons of interviews coming up for you in the next week or two. I've mentioned before that I will be going to South by Southwest. I'm on a panel with uh, the folks from Nest uh, with, uh, with Joe Dada, the CEO of Incyon, and Liat Benzour, who is with Philips. She used to help run the all Alliance, and I'm on a panel with those guys. I'm moderating it, but I'm also throwing a smart home party. Uh, I got the folks from Z-Wave Alliance to uh, be my sponsors on this thing, and so if you're interested in going, if you are not going to be a South by Southwest, if you live in Texas and you can drive to it, e- email me, and uh, I will get you a pass to that. Uh, it's a limited amount of people that can get in this party. We're working about 250 people, um, and we're, we're keeping pretty tight restrictions on who gets in because the thing about South by Southwest, if you mention your party out there, you have an open registration. These things are flooded like in an hour, and not that I don't want a lot of interesting people to come to my party that I never met before, but I'd rather come have people come that want to talk about the smart home. And so we're going to do that. We have the steakhouse. Uh, we're renting out the rooftop for two and a half hours. It's right next to the convention center. It's on St. Patty's day. So maybe we'll have some green beer. So if you want to come celebrate and, and talk about smart home with some very interesting folks, people, senior industry execs in the smart home space. Email me, let me know, email me at the smart home show at gmail.com. Again, the smart home show at gmail.com. And let me know if you want a ticket to to our smart home party. And uh, I'll put you on the guest list. All right, folks, if you want to listen to more smart home shows, you know where to go to go to technology.fm. Uh, if you want to subscribe to our my weekly write up on the smart home industry, just go to smarthomeweekly.net. And I thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.